We have a very special show today. Actually, our first guest, we're going to have a segment with Tim DeRoche from Available to All, an advocacy group that is pushing nationally for us to open up the boundaries of public education so that we don't have educational redlining. We don't have young people who are partitioned off from all the opportunities that they could possibly have to learn by state and systemic barriers that are put in place on purpose to keep some kids in place A and other kids in place B with wildly different opportunities in those places to learn. So we're starting right now with Tim DeRoche. Tim, thank you so much for joining the show. Appreciate you for being here. Great to see you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, I thought you were the perfect person on this topic to talk about because the New York Selective Admission Schools generally year over year have very few kids of color that make it through, but specifically black kids, I should say. And then this high school divestment. We had a news report that came out not that long ago that it was seven, seven out of like a thousand something black kids that made it in. Now, I know that you don't always focus on this specific and finite of an issue like selective magnet schools, but it does open up this question that when we talk about public schools, we assume that they're public for all and that they're available to all and that they take all comers. That's one thing that we've heard in education all the time. Well, you know, the public schools, they have to take all comers. But it feels like it's slightly less simplistic than they have to take all comers. Maybe everybody gets to get in, but once you get in, your opportunities to learn, well, let's just say they're segmented (laughs) in ways with barriers and gates and all kinds of hoops and things you have to jump over. So your work with Available to All came up in my mind as like, well, the Tim's the guy to talk to about this because this is something you're dedicating your entire organization to. So tell us why, number one, and what's the scope of the problem? What is the problem? What's the scope of it? And why does it need a whole advocacy group to work on it? Yeah, Chris, as you and I have discussed before, this comes out of some of the things that I saw in my old neighborhood of Los Angeles some things that were going on there. And there were seven or eight elementary schools. This was Northeast Los Angeles, about two miles north of downtown LA. And what we saw happening is that there was one coveted school up on the hill, one coveted elementary school, right? And everybody's all a buzz about how do we get our kid into Mount Washington Elementary? Well, the way you get your kid into Mount Washington Elementary is you buy a home in this very misshapen, possibly gerrymandered attendance zone that determines who's allowed to go to Mount Washington. And in Mount Washington, the stakes are quite high. Mount Washington Elementary has reading proficiency rates up above 70%. And then some of the schools down the hill have proficiency rates below 20%, 16%. So in some cases, your fate as a five-year-old is being determined whether you live on one side of the street or the other. And the demographic differences are very stark, right? Mount Washington is 60% white and the greatest percentage of white kids at any of the surrounding seven schools is 9%. I mean, the zone already covers the kind of nicer parts of town. So it's already more expensive to move into that neighborhood to get access to that school. But Because of the zone line drawn by the government, right, drawn by a district bureaucrat, people are cramming into that zone. Young families are cramming into that zone, driving up the cost of real estate. So in addition to the fact that those homes are already more expensive, now you got to pay a $200,000 premium for an equivalent house on one side or the other. So that just results in huge differences in educational opportunity. And I think it's very troubling for our society. And this happens in 
all major cities across the United States. This is not an LA problem. This is not a problem of the South or a problem of the Northeast. It's in every major city in America. So so when you say there's a boundary drawn and you said the government draws this line, well, let's be more specific than the government. Who literally draws that line? Well, so there are two types of lines that are important in American education. There are district boundary lines. That's typically what people say. I want to move to the right school district, right? They don't often know what they mean by that. But when you move to a district, that's a political jurisdictional line that's usually determined by the legislature or by the voting public to determine who's in a district. And those district lines are very, very important and enforce certain educational inequalities. But there's another type of line that is extremely important that gets talked about less, which are attendance zone lines, right? So this is within the bounds of the Los Angeles Unified School District. These are everyone who's voting together for the school board members. This is the the state has determined that all of these folks within the bounds of this district are meant to be educated together. But the district has some bureaucrat who draws lines to determine who goes to which school. At the elementary school level, these are very fine distinctions. They run right down the middle of a neighborhood, splitting a neighborhood in half often, or in thirds or fourths or fifths or whatever the case may be. And the lines really calcify over time, Chris, because districts quickly learn oh, these people have their property values wrapped up in these lines. If I propose changing these lines, I'm going to get hammered. So oftentimes in Mount Washington, you had these seven schools saw enrollment declining 30 to 50%, right? At the same time, Mount Washington, the only school in the neighborhood, right, has a 40% enrollment gain, right? So you see these stark disparities in how these are playing out. I mean, you could argue that really Mount Washington is a quasi-private school and that really there are two systems being operated in the neighborhood simultaneously. So there's two levels of government that I heard you say that really are responsible here. The first one is to create the district boundary is like a state legislature thing. And the second one, it's your school board, your local school board. Now let's go down another level. Even within a school, there are lines. So principals can make decisions within a school to track students into certain type of, you know, academic opportunities, or you have some schools where two kids walk in the building and they don't see each other for the rest of the year, really. They may be friends at home in their own neighborhood, but the tracking is as such, and I've visited schools and have seen schools like this where it's just this savage. The tracking is as such in some of the schools where they walk through the same door and literally do not see each other for the rest of the year inside that school building. So we're finding all kinds of ways It seems like in this great thing, great American public education, everybody gets in, serves all comers and whatnot. That's like a great kind of national fiction. You just mentioned all these different lines and layers of ways that we gerrymander or redline kids out of opportunity and other kids into privilege. So what's the lever here that we pull to make America right when it comes to education? Yeah, I think there are models out there, right? I think folks have gotten much more comfortable with lotteries to get into school, for example. And I would argue that lotteries are appropriate for public schools, right? So when we pass the charter school laws, right, they purposefully put in safeguards. Charter schools have to take all comers, right? You have to have a lottery. In most cases, you're not allowed to discriminate against a child based on where they live. We did that because we knew that there would be certain incentives in place for charter school operators to try and cherry pick their kids. People who operate charter schools are people just like the rest of us, right? And so some charter schools do try to break the law. They do try to cherry pick their kids. The good news is we have laws that can hold them to account. With 
Other public schools, we don't have laws that can hold them to account. And those school operators are people just like us, just like the charter school operators. They have the same sets of incentives. Some of them are going to act nobly. Some of them are going to work hard, right, to resist their personal incentives and do the right thing and hold to the noble purpose of public education. And some of them are going to fall victim, right, to those incentives. And so what we need are strong laws. And there is nothing that prevents a legislature from forbidding districts from engaging in educational redlining, in requiring districts or schools, individual schools, to accept all comers and have a lottery if they're over-enrolled. I mean, I want to work towards a future in which no child can be turned away from a public school because of that child's residential address. Now, that's a long-term goal, and I think there are ways we can move towards it. One thing I love is just this idea that every school would have to reserve 15 20% of its seats for kids who live outside the zone. That's not even going to affect most schools because most schools are partially empty. They've got plenty of seats. They'll take you if you come. But for these elite schools that have become such a scarce resource, you know, holding 15 to 20% of the seats would allow that school to retain its identity, serving the local population, but would ensure that it is more open as any public school should be. So the specific remedy there is to go to the legislature's and have them have to rethink lines and boundaries for equity, for change the algorithm. The public school algorithm right now is an inequitable algorithm because it's based on an equitable blueprint that actually puts kids into buildings and into seats based upon where they live. And where they live is based upon old patterns of how we segregated people by race and income. So we know that if we put the public school schematic on top of the housing schematic, we know the predictable outcome. The outcome's very predictable. Like you don't do it that way, but yet we do it that way over and over again. And I think people on the left and the right, actually, if you're at the good end of that inequity problem, of that algorithm, if that algorithm is actually putting your kid into a building and into a place, into a place that you want them to be, where the resources are good, you know, that teachers are happy and healthy because they're serving an upscale population and everything else, there's not a lot of political will to want to change that, right? I mean, who's going to willingly say, yeah, you know, I have an advantage and I would love to give it up. Who's going to do that? Yeah, it's a good point. And I would say, you know, when I've tried to talk to parents about this, right, if someone with a third grader at one of these schools runs into me at a cocktail party, I am the last person they want to talk to, right? But the point here, though, is that the people who will talk to me are the people who have like a junior in high school, right? Their youngest kid is a junior in high school and they're kind of done. They will say to me, yeah, we played this game. It probably shouldn't work this way. Yeah. Right. And, and I get it. I, I have sympathy for parents who have played by the rules. Hey, these are not rich, rich, rich people. Right. These are people who kind of financially stretched to get into the nicer part of town. Right. In order to get access to this school and they're paying extra on their mortgage. Why are they doing that, Tim? I mean, just to be real, they're buying advantage on purpose. I mean, I love it when someone after they've made full use of the advantage starts to have kind of like some moral tinkerings around. Oh, yeah. You know, now I'm ready to do the right thing in America and not participate in a 
racist, unjust, kind of sociopathic economic system of educating kids. That's great that you get that late in life. But why do you do it in the first place? Like we have to have a moral discussion at some point, I think, about this idea of trying to get the most social distance between you and the outgroup kids on purpose. I think that's part of it, Chris, but I think there are deeper things going on. I think some folks will say, oh, well, we should just make all schools equally good. I think what they're missing is that where you send your kid to school is often a sign of status. It's an aspirational thing. It's like, I want to be a part of that club. And so in some sense, it will always be perceived to be scarce. Even if all the schools were equal, perfectly equal academically, you'd still get a lot of these effects, I think. And I think we have to keep that in mind and we have to design systems that mitigate that. I don't think there's any way around it. And yes, People of all sorts have fears around people who aren't like them. And there are problems in American society and people are afraid. Hey, you know, I don't want to send my kid to a school with high levels of crime. Now, sometimes they're not right, right? That maybe that school doesn't have a higher level of crime. Maybe that's just a perception they have. But the problem is perceptions govern how you behave. And I, I just think it's hard to get away from this sense that certain schools are going to be more coveted. And if the government's going to operate the schools in the name of the public, then we have to have safeguards in place like we put in place with the charter schools. It doesn't mean charter schools are perfect. It doesn't mean this stuff doesn't happen in charter schools, but at least we have the tools to crack down on it. And we don't have the tools to crack down on it in the other types of schools. So I want to get to Stuyvesant, New York, quickly. So there's this New York Times article on June 2nd that came out. It's called Stuyvesant High School Admitted. 762 new students, only seven were black, right? And you're talking about New York. So you're talking about like one of the most diverse places on earth, <laughs> like in terms of like, you know, you just would expect different outcomes. It's a very segregated school. It's like one of the bluest places in the country. It's like one of the bluest cities and one of the bluest education markets in, this, in the country. So you would expect different kind of like outcomes from a place like that. But only 10% of offers in New York City's elite high schools went to Black and Latino students, revealing racial and ethnic disparities. Stuyvesant High School offered only seven spots to Black students and 20 to Latino students, while Staten Island Technical School had two Black and seven Latino among its offers, which is even worse. I didn't, I didn't know about that data point. The mission process based on a single entrance exam is the subject of ongoing debate with many people really wanting to attack that particular way of enrolling kids in. So what do you think about this one? It's off the beaten path from what Available to All does, but it doesn't feel to me like if you run a high school that's available to all, if you use a single test taken on a single day when you know that the outcome is going to be pretty predictable racially. This is not my area of expertise. And what we stand for at Available to All is an equal opportunity for every kid to attend a public school, right? Like every public school has to be equally open to all of the kids. And so in theory, a test in program can be equally open to all, right? There's criteria, right? There's a test, right? Now, when I hear numbers like that, that's troubling, right? And what I worry about, given what I see in the educational redlining world, right, where people say, oh, we need to assign kids to schools, you know, close to their house. And then what we end up doing is creating exclusionary discriminatory maps, right? What I think you have to worry about with all of these test-in programs, the gate programs at elementary level, the test-in magnets at the high school level, I think you have to worry that... The hurdle, right, the test in this case, is it really matched to what is necessary to do the work at that school? 
right? And when you hear numbers like that, I just worry that what's happened is that powerful parents have kind of persuaded the district to put in place a test which favors certain types of folks, right? Now, I don't know that that's true. And maybe that test is well-matched, right, to what it takes to do the work in the school, maybe, but it would certainly raise my eyebrows and make me want to look more closely at that just because I've seen, in the case of educational redlining at the elementary level, how a benign thing on the surface can mask some other things going on underneath. Well, I think this gets into the larger debate around when you look at the outcomes of the thing, it tells you a lot about how the thing is structured. So when you see the outcome of seven black kids getting in in a state and in a city that is very blue and diverse or whatnot, it raises a lot of questions that I think are important to your work, which is we have lots of people that like to extol the values of public schools, but when it comes down to these redlining factors, there are many ways that create islands of privilege and education deserts. There are many different ways of making that happen systemically, right? And it's predictable stuff. If you base enrollment in a school on residential address and you're a smart person, you should be able to predict what the population is going to be that comes through the door. If you base enrollment on a standardized test that happens on one day, once a year, and you consider that, well, everybody theoretically can you know, pass that test or whatnot, but you're a smart person and you understand what money and home and communities do to game those tests, then you can predict that you're going to have. I mean, this was a story several years ago about seven black kids getting in. And today, several years later, it's so I'm now becoming a pattern recognition person. I understand that if I enroll based on any of these factors, whether I agree with it or not, doesn't make the difference. The difference just is, am I a smart person? Do I understand science? Can I predict things? Can I predict who's going to get in if I do this? And this is a population that doesn't look like America. It definitely doesn't look like New York. So when you end up with a stuyvesant that doesn't look like America or doesn't look like New York, it should open up some questions for you. And the other thing I would ask is, hey, well, how many of those kids would have passed that test? If they hadn't been trapped in educationally redlined schools in elementary and middle school, like if they hadn't been clustered with all other low income folks, right, in these schools that have been racially divided by government policy, right, not by choice, by government policy, then maybe they'd be doing better on those tests. One, that's part of the prediction. When you say, OK, show me where they went to school before this and how they got into those schools. And why were they all crowded together? When you start asking questions, the kind of questions you're asking nationally, but how did all those kids get together? And who was the name of the school that you were talking about in Los Angeles? Mount Washington Elementary. Yeah. Like, so you ask them critical questions like, how did this school population become like this? Why is this like this, right? You have to have some intellectual curiosity. I feel like we're killing curiosity in these debates because we have a political position. And of course, listen, this is what people in that situation at that school at Mount Washington, they're going to say, listen, I worked hard for what I have. Nobody gave me this house. Like I worked for this house. I paid for this mortgage. And it's because I worked my butt off. I went to college. I got a job. I don't always love my job that I have to do, but I'm doing it and I'm making a little bit of money and I can afford this house and nobody gave it to me. So me putting my kid in this school, I kind of mowed that a little bit. You know, this is what I worked for. And someone else theoretically could have worked for the same thing, right? Like theoretically, you could have worked your way into Mount Washington school some kind of way. And I'm sure the people who passed this test to get into Cybessent kind of say a similar thing. Like, listen, you know, I test prepped every day for 24 hours a day. I didn't do anything else. I didn't even eat. I just test prepped and blah, blah, blah. I worked hard and that's how I got here. Yeah, you worked hard. So you worked harder than the person who 
goes to school during the day and then goes and works at McDonald's at night and then has very little time to do their homework. Yeah. Yeah. You worked super much harder than them. Yeah, you did. Yeah. I have sympathy for all of those folks. The people I have lack of sympathy for are the people who buy these homes and then shame other, like on the mom's groups in LA, like my wife will let me peer over her shoulder. Like if somebody asks a question about a charter school, these people come down hard. Like, how can you consider a charter school? We send our child to the local public school and you should do the same. It's like, well, yeah, but you spent $300,000 extra to avoid sending your kid to the same schools that you're now telling everyone else they have to send their kids to in order to participate in the system. That I have a problem with. And again, I, I agree. Like There are deep ironies. And the policies that we've enacted encourage these kind of perverted behaviors, right? And people working hard, doing their best, gaming the system as it's been presented to them, end up doing these things which look morally very suspect, right? And yet they're very morally righteous. So I just try to retain sympathy for these folks. Like we've got bad policies. We need to fix the bad policies. I mean, I wouldn't be happy if someone came in and said, I'm going to you know, do something that's going to reduce your property value by $200,000. But on the other hand, for my kids, why do we have all these policies that are jacking up home prices? Like why is the government actively distorting the real estate market, jacking up home prices? We all as a country have a huge stake in having housing prices be reasonable, Right. But of course, personally, you have your wealth wrapped up in your home and you're like, ah, don't touch my home value. So anyway, we need to work on the policies so that people can't, you know, just pursue their personal goal and result in these, you know, hugely perverted, unequal outcomes. I think that's a great place to stop because at least that stops on your point of optimism versus mine. Because if we keep going, I'll just like go further into pessimism. But Tim DeRoche, thank you so much for joining us today. Tell people two things, one about your book and two, about where they can find you and find out more about your organization. Yeah, my book is A Fine Line, How Most American Kids Are Kept Out of the Best Public Schools. You can find it anywhere you find your books. And Available to All is our organization. We just launched a couple of weeks ago. I published an op-ed in Time Magazine about some of these issues just two weeks ago on the anniversary of Brown v. Board of Education. And you can find us available to the number two, available to all on Twitter. Thanks so much, Tim. Appreciate you. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. Friends, welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. If you are new here, thank you for joining the show. We try every week to get into education in ways that isn't just the normal route and path. And my good co-host here, Ravi Gupta, who has a lot of background in the issues that we talk about in democracy and education, because he's a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South, which makes him uniquely qualified for his role here to help us stay on track with providing you with a quality show about both democracy and education. Ravi, welcome, sir. How's it going? Can't complain, man. You know, skies are now clear in New York City. This is like an interesting time of year. It's like the city at its best. So I'm in high spirits. How about you? I saw the pictures. They looked unreal from a distance as somebody who doesn't live there. They looked like everybody was using filters, like someone was coloring it in. And if it looked the way that the pictures looked, 
I think I would have had to leave the city for a weekend just for a mental health break because it looked crazy. As somebody who lives in Minnesota, Southern Canada, we didn't really get the same thing that you guys got, but I feel bad for my Canadians and I feel good that my New Yorkers are now not under a dystopian haze in your skies and in your schools. Well, Ravi, you are uniquely qualified for this discussion today because this show is about democracy and it's about education. And my hope is in the long run, it's about democratic education like education that serves everyone and serves the whole country. We have 50 million students that we need to get through a system so that they can one day do what we're doing, have work that they find meaningful and that they enjoy, be sitting here like these two guys on microphones living out their dream, right? And we want that for more kids. You and your work as an educator years ago saw many kids that you knew for positive, like statistically, it might not happen for them, right? That's just being a realistic person. If you're like a scientist, you predict things and you look at kids and you can see not everybody's going to make it. But today's show it really is about red states and blue states. And it seems that, you know, we are the most bifurcated we've ever been politically. So we have these states like Oklahoma, Iowa, Texas, Florida who are on one kind of political tangent. And then we have blue states, you know, most notably California gets put to the top of the list, but you also have states like mine, Minnesota, which we're going to talk about a little bit today. And I just thought it would be interesting for us to talk about what is the difference in political and educational outcomes or outlooks when you have a state that goes blue or a state that goes red. For many years, Minnesota was purple. I mean, we're the state that elected Jesse Ventura. We're the state, you know, that gave you guys a Republican governor and a Democrat legislature that produced all kinds of bipartisan stuff at one point. Tim Pawlenty comes out of Minnesota. I mean, you know, he's a national Republican now, but, you know, he was here. And just recently, we had a trifecta. So we have an all-Democrat government in Minnesota. It's the trifecta. So that unleashed their ability to do a lot of things. And then, of course, in places like Florida, you have a very opposite red governance. So let's talk about this in terms of we have two articles. So the first article, let's start with the one with Florida. In a deep red Florida county, a teacher-led revolt shames the right. And this is a Washington Post article from June 1st. This isn't an article that tells the whole story of Florida. It's just like uh, culture wars have come to a, a point in Florida where the local battles and fights are getting really intense between teachers and educators and parents and everyone. And there's a quote here from it. Nearly 50 teachers are reportedly planning to resign in this school district. And this is one district in one very red Trump district in Florida. The president of the teachers union there says that laws and directives restricting what educators can teach are the key reason. She told the paper there, there is an increased pressure and scrutiny on an already difficult job there's a growing liberal counter-mobilization in this one county. Liberal parents are starting to speak up and have to show up. So it's becoming this kind of like nasty, chaotic thing there. And we won't get to the blue state first, but let's just live here for a second. Tell me what your thinking is if we think about this as this is red state government. This is what you get when you get red state government. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. DeSantis himself has been governor now for four years but he was preceded by Republican governance pretty much. Florida has been pretty red for a while now. DeSantis, in his Twitter announcement, talked about how Florida is number one in education in the country. And actually, I don't tweet that much, if you didn't notice, but I did tweet back because I had to look it up because I was like, you know what, Florida number one in education. I was like, that sounds surprising. So I looked it up and I, you know, like any good education wonk, I looked at Nate 
which is the nation's report card, essentially, is the best data you have on this kind of stuff. And it's not number one, according to NAEP. So, and it's not terrible. It's just not number one. So in grade four math, they're fifth. Grade four reading, they're fourth. Grade eight math, they're 33rd. Grade eight reading, they're 22nd. And that's the only data we have from 2022. So really good in fourth grade and about average in eighth grade. Right. So that's not like red meat here or there. I don't think it really says a whole lot other than that. It's not the best. It's not a catastrophe right now. And and I know that's not the story that anybody wants to hear. I do think, though, that the story that DeSantis has been telling in that state has unleashed some incredibly chaotic and immature politics at the school and school board level. And this piece in that Washington Post, you know, the one in a deep red county, a student teacher revolt shames the right, talks all about Hernando County, Florida, and how teachers and parents and students are just exhausted by these Moms for Liberty type parents showing up and just throwing platitudes around and trying to get people fired and distracting people from the work at hand. I think the backlash to the backlash has arrived, Chris. And I've been pretty generous to some of these people in terms of like trying to find like where the truth lies and some of their critiques. But I think they have shown themselves in many ways not to be totally genuine about their project and are sowing chaos in our schools. And I think people are pissed off about it. And I think that's pretty welcome. Hopefully this restores some sanity at the level of the school board and the school. In this Tampa Bay Times, there's an article that people should go look for. It's called Florida's Education System is Vastly Underperforming. It's by Billy Townsend. He's a longtime educator watcher of the Florida education system. Some highlights from the article. Florida kids regress dramatically as they age in the system. Since 2003, Florida's eighth grade rank as a state has never come close to its fourth grade rank on any NAEP test in any subject. The size of Florida's regression is dramatic and growing, especially in math. Florida's overall NAEP state rank regression between fourth and eighth grade since 2003 is 17 spots in math and 18 spots in reading. But since 2015, the averages are 27 spots in math and 19 spots in reading. No other state comes close to Florida's level of consistent fourth to eighth grade performance collapse. I want people to always dig into numbers. For comparison, Massachusetts, which is a very blue place and the opposite of Florida in so many ways, typically ranks at the top or the near among states on both the fourth and the eighth grade NAEP for math and reading. Its eighth grade rank has never been more than one spot lower than their fourth, meaning What is happening between fourth and eighth grade is that Florida students are losing a ton of ground. And in other states, there's a ranking of how much of that loss happens. And Florida leads the charge on that loss, that regression. So anyways, I like that you started with like wanting to dig into the numbers when someone says something like, oh, we're number one in the country and blah, blah, blah. This also happens to be the choiciest market in terms of educational interventions. They've got them all. They've held kids back in third grade for reading. They've got choice, more choice than anybody on planet Earth. They've done all these things and it doesn't necessarily make them the powerhouse that they say they are. But do you think we've gotten to the crisis point, though, in terms of the backlash? You're saying the backlash has arrived. I'm waiting for the backlash to really arrive because I still see chaos. I mean, the backlash to the backlash. Yeah, the backlash to the backlash. I still don't see any parents like showing up to shout down the crazy parents. I still see nothing but video of the really just getting more bizarre parents starting to show up 
My question always when I say this, Ravi, like my number one question is, is this what you want your school board to look like? Is this like what you want to sit through? As somebody who's been through a lot of school board meetings, is this what I want to sit through, right? No, of course not. I think people want to be able to be free to do their jobs. And I think it's one thing to have a thoughtful discussion about what's been playing out, I think, in a lot of these charter schools and in reform generally around conversations around like these postmodern critiques of merit and you know, rigor and some behavioral systems and things like that. And I think by and large, although there are periods of time where I felt like there was a rather unhealthy conversation going on, I think a lot of those conversations have kind of simmered down to the point where people are exchanging real ideas about how to adapt schools and coming out with different answers, but the temperature has cooled down on that quite a bit. And I think the debates sound more reasonable and tangible than they have in previous years. But what I think hasn't happened is that the right haven't adjusted their story to account for the fact that most other reasonable people have moved on from the extremes of this debate, like the types who get paid to keep this story going. They want parents to think that there's this left-wing mafia coming for your kids. And they weaponize anecdotes, and inevitably those are going to be anecdotes in this country. And there are certain cities and districts that I trust way less than others to educate kids, but they're trying to make every suburban parent think that like whatever is going on in Berkeley, California is happening in their school, right? Not to pick on Berkeley. I have no <laughs> idea what's going on in Berkeley, but yeah. I think a lot of parents are like, big deal. Why are you so upset about this? Move on. And yeah, I do think the backlash to the backlash is starting. And I think that some of these guys have overplayed their hands. And they've also been quite obviously cheering on the sort of burning down of like the sort of civic glue of our schools. Not that that civic glue is ever that strong, but they don't seem too above board about their project. I believe more now of the romantic left-wing narrative about what public schools are than I ever believed before. And I can thank the right wing for me coming to terms with just how important it is to have a school system that we hold in common that values diversity, equity, inclusion of every person, that speaks multiple different languages, that houses people with many different religions. I don't know what your school situation was like, but in terms of walking through the same door with a whole bunch of different kinds of people being in one place and having to figure it out and like having to be able to deal with people of different kinds or whatnot, I poo-pooed that for years. Every time I would hear it, I would laugh about that Thing. Like when people would talk about that as a thing, and I don't do that anymore. And I can thank the right wing for showing me just what happens when you start tearing apart that glue. We get to a place where it's okay to just openly hate people, to openly start legislating against a group of people, just make them a project. And here's the thing, I don't have to be one of those people to know that it'll eventually come from me. So I'm not down with that. Like whenever I hear about legislation about like this group is so bad that we have to legislate and take their rights away, you know, trans kids, gay families, Muslims, immigrant families or whatever. I don't have to be any of those things for my alarms to go off. And I think we initially set this up as a red versus blue state. And that was only to say that like all of that we've just talked about, when you look at Iowa, Oklahoma, Texas, Florida, and you get a very red situation, you get an outgrowth. This is one guy talking. This is just me talking. You get an outgrowth of what I consider to be a lot of anti social politics and legislation, not meant to make the people better, not meant to lift all boats, not meant for all boats to rise at the same time. You get a lot of outgrowth of anti-trans work and anti-black and anti-CRT and black scholarship is bad and blah, blah, blah. And then every day you have to figure out which boogeyman you're running from and which ones, you know, whatever. That's the outgrowth. 
Minnesota just closed one of its most kind of blue sessions that it's ever had in legislative history as kind of like a counterbalance to the conversation we just had. And it created something of what progressives are calling the Minnesota Miracle Part Two because we had a Minnesota Miracle years ago. And it's just the massive passage of a whole bunch of progressive policies that came after we had the trifecta government takeover of all Dems. And it's a case study in the opposite. It's all pro-social stuff, stuff that includes protections for abortion rights, family leave, transgender rights, voting rights, gun control, LGBTQ protections and sanctuary state status, marijuana legalization, but not just legalization, but also some backward thinking about what we do with the people that we already kind of criminalized over long periods of time with strict kind of marijuana laws, increase in education funding, increase in affordable housing, all kinds of tax reforms, just you name it. It was the wish list, workers' rights. And it just, to me, it's just striking of what happens when a pro-social party takes over versus an anti-social party has full control. And I think America should think about that. As somebody who is just captured by the idea of a third party or a new way or a purplish thing or something... This is, to me, this is my learning is when I look at the duopoly, one of the things that people like me always say is the duopoly is all the same. Oh my God. You know, I can remember saying this with Clinton Bush or Gore Bush, I'm sorry, and Clinton Dole. I would always say, you know, they're just the same. I was one of those Nader guys. I was like, oh, the duopoly is all the same. Well, the truth is I might still mean that we need a third way, a third party as a Jesse Ventura voter, but they're not the same. <laughs> if I look at a red state and a blue state, what they're producing, what their outcomes are, or one, I can criticize both of them, but I definitely no longer can say what I used to say, which is, oh my God, you know, it's to duopoly. They're all the same. Disclaimer, we're C3. We do not support any political party on this podcast or oppose any political party on this podcast. But I do think it's fascinating because, you know, it, at previous points, I said certain things like, yeah, it would be hard for me to vote for you know, a Republican for president or whatever. And you seemed appalled by that. I think you actually said that. In a, what world would you support a Republican for president? based on what you're saying. I mean, man, the type of Republicans I would vote for have been deposed. Like, I'm sure I would have at one point been a very Jeb Bush positive person, but look what comes after Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush gets deposed. People don't talk about this. We don't talk about, we all know things and we don't talk about them, but Jeb Bush was, you know, front runner guy in the kind of more, you know, work across the aisle type of Republican, the Republican who could get bipartisan things done, you know, in a state, in a place like Florida. That's the old Florida. That's the old Republican Party. That Republican Party died on the day that Trump got endorsed and all of the people with it have been pushed to the side. So when you ask me a question like that, what kind of Republican could you vote for? It's interesting to me that the most of them have been deposed. I mean, God, we're at a point now where a George Bush one looks highly moderate. At this point, Reagan is pretty damn moderate in comparison to what we're doing in the Republican Party now. So I don't know. Let me provide for the sake of our C3, at least what I think the appeal could be for Republicans. I was thinking about this in New York, where they legalized casinos recently and they legalized recreational marijuana, but they have a finite amount of licenses and they give those licenses to huge corporations for the casinos, like there's like a few of them and they're all like mega conglomerates are putting in certain places. And then they're on the recreational marijuana, they have this opaque process where you have to like go do a whole thing to be able to be a dealer and all that. And they, they're giving out a few licenses and basically handing over an oligopoly to a small group of people and two vices that they're regulating. And I look at that when I think about, well, Adam and some of these guys on the school front, and I'm like, when they say permissionless, you know, I'm not talking about Ron DeSantis, I'm talking about the people who are like legitimately ideologically 
opposed to a a system where you have to seek permission for every little thing you do. I do think that there is the beginning of a story that if told correctly will motivate a lot of people and probably does. There's a reason why this country is, some people would say 50-50, some people say 55-45, 60-40, whatever, but it's close enough that every election is up for grabs. One of those reasons why is that I think Democrats are in love with making people ask permission to do anything in this country. And I think that turns a lot of people off. Like these hearings in New York State and in the city council, they sound like they're talking about infants. They're like, ah, we can't let people gamble like mom and pop Chinatown establishment open up a gambling facility. Never mind the long history that community has had of operating gambling facilities in this country because God forbid what they do with that responsibility. So we were going to like find the right technocrat CEO who's going to open up a gazillion dollar facility in Times Square. And like, I think when people hear that, it's kind of like the school conversation, which is, oh, hey, this Yale Law graduate's going to come to North Nashville because he has the right relationship with the right foundation to open the right school. But, you know, a generational family who grew up there who wants to open up their own parent pod or their own school is going to be told no. And they look at the combination of those things and they say, well, this is the nanny state, right? And I think that turns a lot of people off. And I think there's a populist progressive version of that story that resonates with people. And this is why I think it's incumbent upon Republicans to find genuine people willing to speak to those communities instead of taking advantage of them, you know? You know, I would have at one point said the same thing that you just said. And I think about it now, especially at my age, to think of the number of things that went to market that killed people. And I think about some of the things that people love about the safety of America that they don't love about some other countries where like, you know, nothing is regulated and you can take Tylenol and die. The instinct to want to regulate doesn't come from some wanting to make people beg for permission. It comes from the reality of knowing what an unrestricted market can do to the populace. It doesn't come from some desire to put brakes on everything and make, treat people like children. Why do we assume the best intention of the liberals, but not the conservatives, right? Like I'm saying like, yeah, there are good and bad intention liberals. There are liberals who are in love with their own power. And then there are liberals who are well-intentioned and want to prevent safety. There are conservatives who truly are just out for self-interest and want to maximize profit. And then there are conservatives who truly believe that the free market, it leads to more freedom and greater outcomes for people. I think that there are good and bad intentions on both sides of that equation. First of all, I don't think think there's two sides and I don't think it's both sides and I'm not a both sides guy. I don't think that this is about liberals and conservatives as much as I think that this is about markets and about how markets operate and what happens to people. So I understand when you talk about payday loans, where you start getting into some complicated discussions about people who have different ideas about whether or not I should be free to go and sign up for a very expensive loan if I know what I'm doing, right? And then I also get the side where, yeah, but then again, a market that is made to be predatory on people who are ignorant is actually a thing. Like that actually is a thing. So I get kind of like, you know, where you would have some nuances in that. And also I haven't been a big regulation guy for a long time. I'm not like big on regulating everything. But the more I see things like Flint water and the excesses of corporate, like corporate has so many excesses that are getting exposed on a regular basis, things that they do that are just gross. It starts to get me to be a little bit more, I think, sympathetic to those who like to put the brakes on some things and ask for some, you know, some permissions. In education, this is especially acute to me because this is what I know about education. I don't think that everybody just gets a license to go out and do whatever they want in education when it's still really hard to get people to understand that education is about teaching and learning and assessment and data and complex instruments and understandings of how budget and staff work and all of these different things 
that even if you're an expert in it, it's still complex. It's still complicated and complex, even if you're an expert at it. So the idea that we're just going to like live some glory kind of like story where everybody's going to run out and get a free ticket to go and do something, and it's going to be permissionless. And let me add this little complication. At the same time that you're pushing this permissionless kind of like new marketing scheme, clunky kind of focus-tested way of thinking about selling the same thing over again, you're also making people beg for permission to show a Disney movie in class, to teach black history, to talk about CRT, or to check a book out of a library that some parent on the street doesn't want you to read. Talk about permission. I believe in equitable self-determination of education. And I don't think the instruments that are being passed right now are it. They're not for me. Definitely can't stand with the restrictions on what we learned. Listen, at the end of the show, guys, I want to say every week, we talk about the fact that we want to hear from you and we love your feedback. And there are two ways for you to give us feedback. One is to call us and leave a voicemail at 321-213-9171. And the other way is to send us an email at citizenstuartshow at thebranchmedia.org. I also every week encourage you to go to thebranchmedia.org and look at our other shows on there so that you can see the range that we have in this network. It's an amazing range. As somebody who is trying to learn Spanish and do better on our Spanish, we have a Spanish language podcast, and I'm not getting it yet, and I'm not there yet, but I'd encourage even those people like me who are at an old age trying to branch out and learn some new things or whatnot, actually go and check out that podcast and the others there because we have a range of thinkers from many different places and backgrounds in terms of our intellectual range on this network. So please do that. Go to thebranchmedia.org, look at the other shows. And we do have some feedback that came from two sources. So for one, someone left a bit of feedback about one of our shows that we did with Neil McCluskey. And he says, Chris, in your last stack of questions for Neil McCluskey, the one that didn't get answered was what happens to the public option once the ESA money starts flowing out of the public school system into the private schools? Given that 89% of students are in the public system now, that's a huge question. And if those schools start to fall apart, who will get the hardest hit? In the future, school choice convos, please explore this. Thanks. And I will say that we will. Robbie, do you have like a 30, 10, five second answer to that? Question. I did have a, uh, a conversation with Corey DeAngelis, who's a big school choice proponent that I haven't posted yet, that I asked him about this. And my point to him was, and I'm, this is true of charter people too, I, I feel like acknowledge the impact on the system. And there is an impact on the system. Now, he will argue based on his data that the impact is positive. What I was telling him is like, yes, I've seen the Ohio study. You and I have talked about it here and all that, that there is a, like in certain places, a positive impact. But if you take the sum total of the end result of universal eligibility for ESAs, if they are the great thing that many ESA proponents suggest they are, you will definitely have to close some traditional public schools. And you should say that. Like, and this is what it gets at what you're saying about being honest. If I'm warming up to ESAs, I will only stay warm if we're being honest about what we're asking people to do here. Because if we're pulling the rug out from people, then that's not fair. So you have to put the choice in front of people. And I do think the end result of universal ESA legislation will be traditional public schools will close. And you have to be honest with people about that. So I don't have a long answer to this. I'll just say to this commenter, which you said is true, in the future school choice convos, please explore this. We will do that. It's one of the most, I think, pertinent questions. It's one of the first questions that people ask, what will happen to the system? I used to poo-poo this question. I used to just be like, that's not your main 
thing that you should be asking when kids are getting on to a better educational opportunity is like, you should always be saying what's going to happen to the kids, not the system that they're leaving. But the truth is, the majority of the kids are going to be in that system that they're leaving. So you're still talking about those kids. You're still talking about kids. One last piece of feedback that we had from Amanda B, a nationally board certified teacher, wrote us to say, in the most recent Citizen Stewart Show episode, during your conversation with Stacy Harvey, you made a comment about redshirting children for kindergarten and implied that this choice is not well thought out by parents electing to do so. In fact, there is great evidence that redshirting boys specifically is of great benefit to them long-term. Research has indicated benefits in reading level, executive function, high school GPA, mental health, and more. And she goes on to provide some background research studies. Ravi, you're the educator here. First, let me just say this. Stacy Shells Harvey, Stacy was on the show with us, actually is an educator and runs schools. And I made a flippant comment about, you know, how redshirting sometimes shows up later in the size of kids, you know, just in the size boys go through a growth spurt and, you know, you suddenly have some tall kids. So Amanda B, it certainly was not to be flippant about the amount of work that parents do to understand the issue when they're making that decision. Not on my part, at least at all. So your research is well taken on my behalf, but I would say to Ravi, do you know anything about redshirting? Is this something that you've thought about or know about? It's your favorite sentence of mine to utter, which is we did a segment on that, <laughs> the lost debate. And I came out uh, very supportive of redshirting for boys. The data on, on women is mixed and we did a whole conversation about it. And I think this uh, listener quoted Richard Reeves. I think we wound up, I think, using a Richard Reeves piece as the peg for that discussion. So I think there's some some sense behind it. I think there are a lot of practical questions that need to be answered. But I also think competency-based learning, something I've proposed on this podcast many times, like the idea that kids should move through the material as they master it and that the way we group kids should be dramatically changed is also part of the solution here that is kind of can get at some of the same things that redshirting does. So Amanda, thank you so much for your feedback. Ravi has a much more informed opinion than I do of it. And certainly was not attempting to be flippant about the whole process that parents go through when they're thinking about doing so. As always, this has been another episode of The Citizen Stewart Show, and we greatly appreciate you for listening. If you made it all the way to the end here, that means you have really listened a lot, <laughs> and we appreciate you so much for doing so. Please subscribe to the show if you haven't. Share it with others if you haven't, and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a review so that we know that you have appreciated the show. Thank you so much. Peace. <laughs>